boomers especially, they would work a job for 40, 50 years and they will die at that company. Whereas, especially millennials, if we don't like a job, we value our lifestyle freedom and the effects that has on us from a personal level very much more sometimes financial piece. That's the money nerd, Whitney Hansen, host of the Money Nerds podcast. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, she tells Jason Thomas CFP how the financial needs, wants, and goals of Gen Y and Gen Z are different than, well, ours. And everything you know about investing for retirement is wrong and dangerous. At least that's what some newsletters would have you believe. Plus, Joe and Big Al discuss five reasons to pay off your mortgage and five reasons not to pay off your mortgage. Here they are now, Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Hey, happy holidays. Got a show lined up. Um, I'm not sure how great it's going to be or how awful, but it's going to be information that potentially you can use. Well, it's let's all right. Let's, let's be honest here. So this is a uh, we're near the holidays. Yes. And we're busy with year end planning. Yes. So how Very. much how much time do we have to prepare for this today? <laughs> Not so much, but anyway, we'll make it work. Yeah, yeah I'm so sick of taxes. I gotta tell you, yeah. Past I, month, we've been well. New tax. Well, new wait ta- a minute, changed. Uh, last last week, forget what we said last week forget, because now just it's delete, different. Delete that. And I actually have stuff on the new bill, but I'm we're gonna wait till it actually happens. Well, I got this pamphlet in the mail. That looks like about what twelve pages. It Are you gonna is, read it? It's twenty two pages. Twenty two. Twenty two okay. pages of got it. pure. Fluff. <laughs> what, what's the topic? It, it, it's the new re- rules of retirement. The new rules. Yes. They, did they change? You, when did it, they change? I, 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 we'll find you out. have to read this. <laughs> okay. It's a, I don't care if you're 40 or 80. Forget about everything you heard about retirement. It's all changed. Everything. Everything has changed. Okay. And this gentleman is going to show us how to stay on top of the changes and how we can use them to create a retirement we desire. How much did that little twenty-two page booklet cost you? It doesn't didn't cost me a, a thing. They're, they're, he wants me to sign up for newsletters and oh. you know, there's some... Oh, is he trying to sell you sell you this so we can like send it out to our clients like we wrote it? No. 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 Okay. Um he's for the end consumer. Oh, he's for the end consumer. Yes. Okay, got it. Yes. So, All right, you're an end consumer. I, I, yes. Well, clo- I, no, I, I, you're you know, close to retirement. <laughs> bit, yeah, very. <laughs> After this show, we'll, we'll be forced. Forced retirement. Right. But um, I, I kind of looked at this, and here's the problem with media. Okay. Okay? Sensational? Very much so. And this is what drives me nuts about these stupid articles. All right, we got six threats Six. six. Only six. <laughs> okay. Well, are these the, the six deadly threats? Yes. These, right. Are they new? Well, I don't know. Well, <laughs> retirement risk, number one, the foundations are crumbling. So okay. you read that and you're like, oh boy. Wow. Uh-huh. You know, for decades, Social Security and Medicare provide a secure financial freedom, uh, but not today, right? So, 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 the, so, okay. So we're losing. Remember the three legged stool? Yeah, you had Social Security, you had pensions, and your savings. Right, right. So now we got uh, so we two got, and a half. We got the pensions are gone, and Social Security's <laughs> crumbling. Crumbling. Foundation's gone. We the got foundation one, is gone. One leg left. You know, but I, I think for most people that are listening to this program, you know, there's going to be some form of Social Security that they will can rely on. Sure. In my personal opinion, right. Right. But most people that are listening to this show are not relying 100% on their Social Security. Or hopefully they're not. Well, right? right. But, you know, we, we meet yes. people yes. Um, that listen to the podcast or the radio show. Yes. And, and typically they've done a fair amount of saving. And by the way, Social Security is really, it's probably designed only to cover maybe 30% of your income, if that. Depends, right. depends what how much money you make. But uh, maybe for the average wage earner, expect about 30%. So the other 70%, you got to make up yourself. So by what, what? What's the date now? Twenty thirty three. Where the, Social Security runs out. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, OA, trust, fund. the trust fund the trust runs fund. out. Yeah, and then there's still people putting into the system, yes. and then with that, it can still provide about eighty percent of the promised benefits. Yeah, give or take. So, so if they yeah seventy eight or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and they keep changing the number, but yeah. So that means if you're going to get what a couple thousand dollars per month, if you get 
eighty percent of that, that's sixteen hundred. So so it's not like it's you're not getting anything. Or you're two thousand zero. Right, and that, and that's what it says, and that's what ha- if the trust fund runs out, then there's not enough receipts coming in to pay the the benefits. And and of course we know that between now and two thousand thirty three, they can do some fixes, like they could increase the percentage uh, pay. They could they can increase the. The, um, they're going to the increase cap, the retirement age. They're going to the increase payroll age. taxes, yeah, right, to all, Social all Security. And that's what they've done before. And it's it's like I, I hate it when people get so sensational about Social Security because it's been fixed before. It will be fixed again. It's not fixed currently because no one wants to touch it. They're going to wait till this gets closer, and then, then they'll fix it. Right. I mean that's our opinion. Right? It, it, total opinion. Yeah. So you could you could disagree with us if you want. But that's what happens all the time with everything. They, you know, Congress waits until the very last minute. It seems like, and then it's like, okay, then they act, and then and then, right? it's, then it's fixed, and and then, and then we, we wait we, another twenty. We, we thirty move years on to the next thing. And right. There's it's, there's there's some. The problem is when you fix something like that, there's pain. And yes. no one, because now you have to pay more into the system, right? And no one wants to do that. So that's why it's a, it's a, uh, what do you call it? A political hot potato? <laughs> that's what you call it. That's what I call it. Yes. Yeah. All right. Here's another one on for you. Okay. You're on your own for uh, medical care. I'm on my own? You're totally on your own. Medicare, gone? What, well, here's the stats that um, they're throwing out. Only 28% of employers with more than 200 employees provide retiree medical coverage. Compared to sixty six percent in nineteen sixty eight. Okay, so I should have been born fifty years well, earlier. Well, you should get another job <laughs> that provides <laughs> medical the, insurance the, when the, you retire. One of the twenty four percent. But most people now are still working at least until let's say sixty two, sixty five. So they yeah. gotta have they they will be on their own for a few years. Yeah, until, if they retire right. prior to sixty five. Correct. And then there's Medicare. Right. Right. But yep. here's another, you know, if I'm reading this, it's like, oh my God, I'm on my own. And then another thing that we talk about too is like, well, a retired married couple age 65 today is estimated average to need more than $270,000. Yep. We've heard that before. And so then what does the average individual think? It's like, I need $270,000 in the bank today. just to cover my medical expenses. I got $140,000, I'm sure. So I, I, I guess I can't even eat. Right. I got, <laughs> I got 150. <laughs> In my 401k, and you're telling me, damn it, I need 270 to cover my medical expenses? What am I going to do? Right. I guess I'm, you know, do I eat or not get medical care? Right. <laughs> well, if I don't eat, I'm just going to die, so I don't need so the medical maybe it care. Matter. It maybe doesn't right? matter. That's the, so that what they don't tell you is that you don't have to pay this all at once. You <laughs> it's pay not a lump sum it, payment you, at 65. You pay it slowly over time. That's that's it. And you, they never say that, though, do they? Right. It's like, it, it's an average. Some people might spend about $5,000 a year. So that's a few hundred dollars a month. Some people might spend $10,000 a year. Yeah, some people 1500 whatever. Right. Right? And so it's it's you don't, it's you not like, well, 65, uh, Mr. Jones, where's your 270K? <laughs> yes. We are the medical police. It looks if like you, you are a little bit If you can't beyond. write a check for 270 you're, you're, you're on done. your own. Uh, what do you think the number one... Retirement planning mistake is number one. Retirement planning mistake is number one. Retirement planning mistake. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, not having enough saved. That's what I would think too. Yeah. No. Nope, not wrong. according to this. Okay. Yeah. Number one planning mistake is uh, the spent more than anticipated. Oh really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So he quoted Eve. Um, so they had. Is, they had. So that implies someone they had budgets or they had some anticipation of what they're going to spend, and then they spent more than it. Yeah, it's like we didn't realize how much everything was going to cost, Bob. That's the mistake we made. <laughs> These are the words of a woman who shared with her husband a large lakefront house with an indoor swimming pool and a secured golf course community in Central Virginia. But they not. also owned a condo in Florida near their grandchildren in the winter. Yeah, they weren't hurting for money. But after five years of retirement, the couple was concerned that they underestimated the cost of retirement. <laughs> and we've we've talked to couples like that, and they always say the same thing. Oh, we're not lavish. I don't, Never. We, we don't know where the money goes. But yeah. we're, well, how can we, we – we can't cut anything. we got to pay the homeowners in the Florida condo. And, <laughs> right. And we got, we got to keep up the boat. Yes. <laughs> the slip fee is – Right. And you got to I, – I, I can't tow it. No. It's 56 I, foot. You know, yeah, that, would, <laughs> that would be a semi to get it out of the water. 
<laughs> and we we got to you have to go to the Florida condo to make sure it's okay and we don't we're going to fly a course but i guess class. to put some validity i think people underestimate sure how much that they're spending yes right so it, that's the first step is to get your arms around but is that right. the number one mistake I don't th- no, it's not saving. Yeah, that's typically it, right? Right? It's a, you have to save, and then if you save, you spend less. Um, so a couple more, and then we'll get the heck out of this stupid thing. <laughs> I got this 22-page um, special report from uh, Bob Carlson's Retirement Watch. Got it. I have okay. nothing. I don't know Bob Carlson, um, but he's smart, savvy um, advice. And some of this stuff is really good. Some of it is not so good. The only thing I don't really care for with stuff like this is that the, the you know. It's kind of oversold. It, a little bit. It's just yeah. the whole selling on fear. Right. Is, you know, the, so the, if, if you just joined us, we're talking about he's got some retirement risks. And the one uh, retirement risk is that um, what the investment advice that you're getting is just flat wrong and dangerous. Where, where the oh, there it is. <laughs> so it's it's investing mistakes. <laughs> you know, most the- retirement investment advice is wrong and dangerous. Okay. Retirees in those close to retirement get the worst investment advice, and it's gotten worse over the years. That's not surprising. Financial advisors and brokers concentrate on investors who are going to increase their investments each year. That's a growth business. Oh. So he's saying advisors and brokers, all right? I agree with, yeah, I think a lot of the training and a lot of advisors and brokers, they specialize in wealth accumulation in a sense of, all right, well, here, let's kind of build your overall portfolio and structure in such a way that we can maximize your overall return. How um, we look at it at Peer Financial Advisors is a little bit different in a sense of we want to preserve the overall capital as much as you possibly can, but still get a conservative rate of return to create the cash flow or income that you need from the portfolio on an ongoing basis. So it's not all about, let's show me the money. Because real easily, if you want to have the highest expected rate of return portfolio, it's pretty easy to do. You just put 100% of your assets into emerging market, small value companies. Well, that's true. It's going to be quite a roller coaster. It will definitely but, be a roller but if coaster. You can, if you can ride it out for 20, 30 years, Boom. You'll, you'll be pretty happy. Yeah, because, right? But it's extremely risky it and is. it's extremely volatile. Yes. And when you're close to retirement, it's like, well, you might actually need that money. Right. So you don't want to necessarily do that. And so I think his point is, is that you have to switch your strategies when you get into retirement or close to retirement. Right. And you have to look at, all right, well, what is the demand of the overall portfolio? What does it really need to do? Right. If I don't need to touch the money for 15 years, then you're going to have a different type of portfolio than someone that needs cash flow in the next 15 days. Right. However, where I think another mistake happens is that once you get closer to that, let's say, retirement date or age where you need to start drawing income or, or, or dollars from your portfolio, I think people tend to get too conservative, right? It's like, oh, well, what happens if you lose 50% of your portfolio like 2008? Right. Well, first of all, it's, if you have a 100% stock portfolio and you need money from it, yes, that could happen to you. But I think most people are, well, maybe I'm naive, but I would say if I'm thinking I'm retiring here, in five years, am I going to have a hundred percent stock portfolio? I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. And Joe, I, I, we've got some experience with this. We we see, I would say, over a thousand new people a year. More than that. Yeah, as I said, over, yeah, over a thousand. I would say for compliance and conservative, yes. I would agree with that. Yes, it's probably I two. Mean, it could be two. I'm I'm thinking more like thirteen, fourteen hundred, but it's over a thousand. I'll I'll put it that way. And I would say we get some people, I suppose, that have no clue on how to do this, but the vast majority of people have at least some basic knowledge that, oh, as I get closer to retirement, I probably should be a little bit safer, right? Right. Because you can't necessarily count on the market to be up when you're trying to pull money out. And that's true, right? And so... As a general rule, as you're, as you're getting close to retirement, you want to make sure that you have potentially more safety than you might have had while you're accumulating. Of course, there's a bunch of exceptions depending upon your own goals and, and desires. But if you're trying to create income 
and a cash flow stream from your portfolio, you want to have a fair amount of safety because you can't count on the market to be up at all times. And it simply is not up at all times. Sure. You know, I think the bigger mistakes that people make, um, and maybe some of the advice that people are getting, um, it, it might be over-concentrated in one area of the market. They're not diversified enough. Or they have half their money in cash and half their money in stocks where it's like, well, I want to be conservative here, but I also need to take on risk. And, you know, so then you got right your foot in the oven and your feet in the freezer type of thing. You're trying to stay warm. Right. uh, right. But that will kill you. So you want to make sure that you first, when you start looking at building an overall portfolio, it's you have to look at two, three, four things prior to even thinking about constructing the portfolio. True. All right. What is your other fixed income sources? How much demand do you really need from the portfolio? Do you have social security? Do you have pensions? All right. Then you look at your expenses, how much that you're spending. We talked about that. Then you have to look at your tax implications of the income that you're currently receiving versus the tax implications of the distributions from your investments. Then from there, then you know, all right, well, this is how the portfolio should be constructed because I need to target Five and a half percent rate of return. You should take the least amount of risk possible to maximize the return for your specific goals. Yeah. So you you invest towards your goals, and and we we I guess we've coined we we've, we've called that a family index. In other words, you do financial planning first, cash flow planning. You kind of you look at what sort of rate rate of return that you need over time to be able to achieve your goals, and then you devise a portfolio that has the highest probability of earning that rate of return. So in other words. If you need 5.5%, Joe, as you just said, well, then why shoot for an 11% rate of return? Because by doing so, you're going to be taking a lot more risk in the portfolio and you'll have a much more volatile ride. Right. So it doesn't have to be as complex, but when you dive into the the weeds then, um, you, you want to make sure that you know what you're doing too. There's going to be a market correction. We just don't know when. Get retirement investing advice that's current, correct, and useful in the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Access white papers like our Retirement Readiness Guide, containing little-known secrets about creating income to last a lifetime. Learn the basics of Medicare, how to bridge the Medicare gap, and 11 common Medicare mistakes to avoid in our Understanding Medicare video series with certified financial planners Joe Anderson and Jason Thomas. Between the webinars, articles, white papers, and hundreds of educational video clips, there is no reason to follow wrong and dangerous retirement investing advice when you've got the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com right at your fingertips. Hey, we got Jason Thomas. He's out in the street interviewing people. He's going to talk to his Money Nerds podcast host, Whitney Hansen. And uh, this is something new. Jason's been with our firm now. He's our financial educator. So I'm going to turn it over to Jason. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Thomas with Your Money, Your Wealth. I have with us today Whitney Hansen, the Money Nerd from WhitneyHansen.com and TheMoneyNerds.com. Those are her two sites that you should definitely check out. Hello, Whitney. How's it going today? Jason, I'm doing so great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really glad to have you here and learn about your blog and your uh, kind of experience and how you're kind of shaping people's uh, financial decisions as well. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you what got you interested in starting uh, your blog and podcast, what, what the significance of the title is, and just a little about yourself. Yeah, happy to. So the, what really got me interested in personal finance was my own personal experience. So I was a first-generation college student, so I went off to college and did what I thought was totally normal, and I took out as much student loans as I could and wasn't really paying attention until 2010, which is the year I graduated with my bachelor's in accounting. And I was sitting there, and I was supposed to be so excited. This was such an important day for me. But I had a bill that said I owed $30,000. And I remember holding that bill thinking, oh, man, what did I do? Why didn't I work a little bit harder in undergrad? Or I wish I had done things differently. And that was the situation I was faced with. So what I did is I put together a plan. And my plan consisted of working two different jobs. So all through undergrad, I worked as a nail tech, and I was doing manicures and pedicures. That was my job to get me through college. And once I did that, um, I got a job right out of college as a staff accountant, and I decided that I was going to keep living like a college student and put all of that income from my accounting job towards my student loans. 
And so that's where I got some really great progress and I was able to pay off the entire 30 grand in just 10 months. And so that's where I started to get really excited about money and personal finance and saw that there was a lot of possibilities if you just buckle down and do the hard work. And so that's where my business developed and that's where kind of the money nerd podcast came from as well was just talking to people's really cool money stories and thinking, wow, we need to share these with other people because that would have been very inspirational and I was paying off my debt. So that's where the whole brand actually started was all from that student loan debt. You know, you see a lot of that where, where people's personal experience leads them into this kind of mm-hmm. field or this industry, either from a career standpoint or from, uh, you know, uh, blogging or uh, otherwise uh, getting involved in a, a discussion of financial issues. And you had an accounting degree. I mean, some of these concepts were not abstractions. I mean, I guess maybe they were a little little more abstract than <laughs> they eventually became. But I think that the point being, your personal experience in this is going to make a point that having all of the coursework in the world cannot no, no, I think you're spot on. It's a really good point, too. So I was very used to the concept of budgeting for people that have a ton of money, so corporations and small businesses. And the thing that was always disconnected and frustrating is that coursework didn't necessarily translate directly to individuals. And it was kind of a bummer. So that was always something that when I started to make that connection of, oh, you should run your personal financial life just like you would run a business's financials, it started to click a little bit more. So it's a really good uh, thing that you brought up, too. You know, and one of the things that I also see that you focus on is that you mention on your site uh, dealing with millennials. And I think this is an important kind of point in the conversation to maybe say what what exactly that means to you and why a millennial would have a different financial outlook than maybe someone from Gen X or, or a previous generation might. What's changed in the world that would, would make them have a different outlook towards the money? That's a great question, Jason. So what I see with most millennials, so let's define that first. Millennials are typically at this stage in the game about 25 to 35 years old. So it can go plus or minus a few years on either end of the spectrum. But what's so interesting about millennials are they are the most educated generation we've ever seen. They're highly educated, yet they are the most underemployed generation as well. So it's fascinating because all of that education, as we know, it comes at a cost, and for our nation, it's, it's significant. I think we're looking at $1.4 trillion in student loan debt. And so that trickles down to the direct individual, the direct millennial, perfectly, because the average millennial in 2016 is graduating with $37,000 in student loan debt. And a lot of these people that I'm coaching and I'm working with, it's not uncommon. I used to think this was a one-off thing, but a lot of these people have, no joke, $1,000 a month student loan payments. And they're only making 2500 It's craziness, but it, it's very unique to millennials is this uh, student loan debt. Well, that, that's a very big needle mover in, in younger people's situation, and not necessarily confined to millennials, but certainly even exacerbated among, among that group, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, because the uh, uh, education is becoming more prevalent. People are attending uh, you know, college and graduate school at a higher rate than they ever have, and the cost is not going down. Let's, let's just be no. uh, frank, frank about that. So you're seeing tons of people in your exact situation coming out with a, a five or maybe even a six-figure mm-hmm. debt before they've even really gotten started in your career. Can you maybe share some of the experiences people have, have mentioned to you on how that might affect their outlook of life? Yeah, it's, it's so great. So I'll give you one example of a very normal coaching client. Uh, came to me with making about seventy to $80,000 a year with bonuses and pretty good income, not bad for the area she was living in, but she had a car payment of about $500. And as we're going through the credit card debt and all of the different debts, um, I finally asked her, so what is your student loan debt? And her response was, oh, it's it's a lot of money, but I'm not really worried about it because it's a low interest rate. And I'm like, okay, well, what's a lot of money? $150,000. <laughs> so it's so fascinating because for, for these generations too, we're trained to, to see that credit card debt and car debt may not be optimal, but for student loans, it's so normal that a lot of people are not even realizing that that's a bigger issue than it actually is. So it's quite fascinating to see that that go down, the, the mentality behind it. It's just really interesting. 
Well, you, you brushed over something a moment ago, which I think might kind of tie into that. You mentioned not just the personal impact of what this might have on somebody, but then you also said, and the impact on society. So I'll just give an example that maybe you can roll with. If, if we're starting off with 150 grand of debt at 22, I'm probably less likely as someone in that position to maybe buy a house or have children or settle down or, or what, or certainly to be an entrepreneur. My, my overall life outlook might be shaped by that. Have you heard people kind of mention the, the pieces of the pie fitting together and how that would affect the other, other decisions that they make and how that might affect us all? Oh, 100%. So a lot of millennials, too, it's, it's kind of a generational thing. Millennials and then Gen Z, this is interesting as well, are very entrepreneurial. They do want to start their own business. But because they have so much debt, they feel like they can't. They can't make that sacrifice. So they can't take a, a job that pays a little bit less while they bootstrap their business. Um, not an option for them because they have the high burden of the debt. So it's really interesting from that standpoint. And then the other standpoint, and I actually have a lot of parents of 20-something-year-olds emailing me about how frustrated they are that their child will not move out of their house yet. And what can I do to help? And it's so interesting to see the dynamics are just changing. Millennials aren't buying houses as fast as they used to. They're not getting married. They are delaying starting families, and they're also not starting that business, too. So it's a big burden on our overall society, for sure. Now, do you relate that primarily to student loan debt, or do you do you find in your discussions with other people that that's one of a mini-tiered stool that's kind of uh, leading to that overall environment? Yeah, it's definitely one of many things, but the student debt piece is actually one of the largest pieces for them. Yeah, when you're talking about an amount that's, that's that substantial, and previously a a bachelor's degree would have been seen as something unique, whereas now it's it might not be a nice to have, but a need to have for, for certain fields. You've, you've got this idea of kind of credential creep in some things. Yeah, that's a really good point, though, to bring up. Yeah, so the idea that this might have been kind of your, your ticket to the middle class, well, it might be your prerequisite to the middle class today in, in some ways, but not necessarily a guarantee. So you've got this debt, and then you have to arrange the rest of your life kind of around it. Our YouTube subscribers arrange the rest of their lives around watching our riveting educational videos on things like year-end tax planning in the midst of tax reform, saving for college, and saving for retirement in your 20s, 30s, and beyond. And this is going to be kind of fun because what we'll look at is to say, all right, well, if you're 20, what should you be doing? And then we'll build on that person. So let's just look at a 20-year-old and kind of progress it all the way through to their retirement. There are literally hundreds of videos to get you up to speed on just about every money topic that affects you. Watch as much or as little as you want, free and on demand. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. Check back regularly because we're always adding new videos. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We're listening to Jason Thomas's interview with Money Nerds podcast host, Whitney Hansen. What are some of the other issues in general that people uh, typically bring up uh, that you're talking with? Yeah, so, so from, a, from a debt perspective, credit card debt is still very prevalent and very common. And one of the interesting things that a lot of people are bringing up, too, is this idea of when... So recently I started teaching personal finance at my university. So I work with a lot of students. I see probably about 200 students per year. And a lot of it is just they don't know where to go to find a good education either. So their parents are talking about money. They have no idea where to go. So it's just this lack of knowledge. And then they do what they think is normal, which is just take out the credit cards, build their credit, buy the car, finance that car because you have to get around and take out as much student loans as you can because you're going to have this better life later. So it's definitely hitting them from multiple areas for sure. You know, the, the parents are, are an interesting situation because we can we can agree conceptually that this thing over here is good, this thing over here is bad, I'm going to do the first, I'm going to avoid right. the second. But what we, what we often do in our lives in general is just we do what we know and what we see. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you kind of talk about maybe some of these conversations with the parents and children either together or with you and how some of the um, differences in, in approaches might have been? Yeah. Well, so I think for a lot of times, uh, for millennials especially, they go through what we call the comparison syndrome. So they're looking at their parents' life when their parents were in their 20s versus where they are today. 
and they feel like I should have this nicer house. I should have a better job. I should have, things should be different. And so a lot of times the child is comparing to where their parents are. And that's not a safe place to be because everybody's life is so different. We all know nobody has the exact same path. Um, so that's where it starts. But then when they do try to talk with their parents about money, it's, it's a taboo topic. So even parents aren't quite comfortable sharing, how do you approach credit card debt? What do you do? How much money do you actually truly need in your savings account for emergencies? So just even the basic concepts and the basic conversations aren't happening. So millennials are doing what they see their parents do too. Okay, my parents have a credit card. I will get one too and start to build my credit. But they're not talking about how interest works or how that minimum payment works or what does that look like if you if you charge more than a certain percentage on your card, how does that impact your credit score? And so those conversations are kind of left out of that, that piece. And it, it's pretty, it's sad to see the detriment of what it can cause. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point because we, we tend to view things relatively uh, mm-hmm. to maybe what our neighbors are doing or the people that we, we know. It's very easy to say something like, well, I have it better than 90% of the people in the <laughs> world, but, but I'm in the bottom 10% of the people on my block, though. So that that's the way that people experience things. I want to just ask a question as a devil's advocate here for a moment because we, we frame yeah. the conversation as these millennials, and by the way, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so I want to just prove to you, you can live the college lifestyle even later. <laughs> so, <laughs> try to make Good that happen you, indefinitely if, if possible. Just just barely. I think I'm, I'm two years off of the cutoff. But So there, there's this... One viewpoint you hear in the media is, doggone it, these millennials would really like the, the traditional economic viewpoint of the, the, the 2.5 children household, the two cars in the garage, the traditional job, you know, what we would perceive as a traditional economic development into adulthood. And then there is the viewpoint of that many millennials are saying, whether that's possible or not, that may not be a value that I have. Maybe I don't value home ownership. I value flexibility or free time or uh, yeah. less commitments or doing things that I value that don't necessarily have as much of an economic payoff. How many of your people, it's, it's a matter of uh, a desire versus a necessity? Oh, almost all of them desire more of that lifestyle flexibility. They don't want to be tied down to a job. So whereas like boomers especially, they would work a job for 40, 50 years and they will die at that company, whereas especially millennials, if we don't like a job, it's we value our lifestyle freedom and the effects that it has on us from a personal level very much more than sometimes financial peace. And so that's why you see a lot of millennials will see that, you know, this isn't worth my time because this is hurting my soul. I'm going to leave this job or I'm going to go for a job that gives me remote work that pays a little bit less. Um, so it's really different. It's much more of a focus on the lifestyle flexibility, for sure. Exactly. And just to just to totally stereotype things, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring up the other the other the <laughs> other not. question that when, when when people mention millennials uh, and the number one thing that usually comes up might be uh, technology or social media. And how how do you see <laughs> those things affecting the monetary viewpoints? Oh, I love that because it is, it's a bad thing for our society in general. So what we're doing is when we're on social media, we're training ourselves to get instant gratification and to also immediately see something and compare our lives to somebody else. Like, oh, Jason just took this really cool trip to Europe. What's wrong with me? I can't go to Europe yet. So we start to compare ourselves to other people, and it's so subliminal that we don't even realize it. But for millennials, it's like everything is so fast-paced. It's We're multitasking all the time. We're constantly, you know, Facebook for five minutes and then hop over to Instagram and see what's going on over there. And during that time, too, we don't realize it, but we're getting bombarded with advertising all the time. And so we're seeing all these really cool new products, new Kickstarters, the vacations that Jason took. I'm totally picking on you, Jason. You must take a lot of vacations. <laughs> Not nearly as many as I'd like, but then then to your point, I'm not really that active on social media, so maybe if I were, I would have more inclination to do that. I see, uh, you know, the the one that you you took, or your hiking venture, which I actually see right now, but uh, it's funny you you went that direction, because I was expecting perhaps an answer about how those tools 
uh, affect the way that people manage their money, but what, what the way that you took it was the way that it, it influences their desires and their uh, the things that they want to spend their money on. Do you think that, that the um, the millennials with the, the ability to connect with them from an advertising standpoint, that that's affected their attitude towards consumerism? I do, actually, I do. So we're seeing this a lot with Gen Z, so the younger generation coming up, and their BS filter is so high. So it's, as a marketer, it's extremely tough to reach Gen Z because they are so ingrained with marketing and advertising and constantly being sold to. And so millennials, we, we get it too, but yeah, Gen Z is an entirely different story. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out. You know, it's funny. Once you have a certain amount of anything, you're marketed to all the time or or anything happens all the time. Maybe you're in an environment that has a lot of wealth or a lot of rain or a lot of violence or whatever it is that your environment has. You have the potential to get desensitized to whatever that thing is. But do you see those people reacting? So what they say, my attitude towards this particular strategy that's that's being employed might be, one way, but is my behavior a different way, or is my behavior kind of in line with it? Am I buying things that I don't need and being influenced, or, or am I? is that skepticism mm-hmm. leading to a different strategy with, with my own money? What do you see from that standpoint? Oh, completely. It, it, it directly impacts us. So what I see all the time, and even talking with my coaching clients, it's hilarious. It may be not be directly social media as the start. Maybe you were first on Amazon, and you're looking at a couple things for Christmas gifts, and then all of a sudden you hop over to Facebook and you see that exact same product following you on Facebook as well. So it's a reminder of, hey, you didn't purchase this. You might want to go back and do that. And I cannot even tell you how many of my clients always fall victim to that, myself included. It, and I know this stuff. I'm a marketer as well. But when I see this, it's like, oh, my gosh, it totally works because they can follow you around on the Internet. So it's constantly reminding you of the products that you are looking at that you maybe really wanted but couldn't afford at that time or whatever the decision was, it, it'll follow you. And it's awful, but that's, that's kind of the way the online world is going. Yeah, it's a very different experience from we all watch 60 Minutes or whatever TV program we happen to be on. We all see the same commercials, whether they are aimed to me or not. You know, I might be a 13-year-old girl. Obviously, the Cadillac commercial is irrelevant to me. And, exactly. you know, you can make, make that example with any any type of person. But you have the ability to target very specifically. And I think mm-hmm. uh, there's been a lot of a lot of reports about even, you know, our last election cycle, like specific targeting to even individual people, not just kind of subsets of groups. Like, And I think that's a very interesting marketing uh, aspect. I'm um, kind of been intrigued to hear that that's been brought up. You mentioned a coaching client. Why don't you just tell us how that in, entire process works? So you, you get someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I need some coaching." What does that look like? Yeah, so I have them fill out an application, which has some basic information, so I can understand where they're at in their financial life, and then where they're at psychologically. Are they actually ready for change? That's an important piece too. So once I get their application, I go through that with them. We hop on the phone, we talk it out. I get a little bit more information about what their goals are, where they're trying to go, and more importantly, if they could actually truly afford coaching. And this is where it gets really sad, and I feel bad a lot of times, but there's a lot of people that I do have to turn away because they don't have the funds to pay for coaching at all. And that's it's a hard time, but that's uh, if somebody can afford it, that's where we, we definitely begin. And when I say can they afford it, I also help them identify where their money leaks are on that initial call. So most people are eating their money. <laughs> they, they literally are eating out four to $500 a month. And so if that's the case, then I know that they do have it in their budget to make some serious changes. So that's where I can help identify ways to either be able to afford it or if they still can't, then I point them to other free resources around our nation and even on my website. 20 and 30-somethings have very different personal finance and investing priorities than their parents. Download our free white paper, Important Financial Strategies for Your 20s and 30s, from the white paper section of the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com with six powerful moves that will help you jumpstart your financial future and a list of important financial goals to set. This free guide provides tools that can help you get out of debt faster, save up for important life goals, and get a head start on retirement. 
parents and grandparents, download important financial strategies for your 20s and 30s for the Gen Yer or Gen Zer in your life. Get it from the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. You're listening to Jason Thomas. He's interviewing Whitney Hansen from the Money Nerds podcast. So the budgeting and debt management aspect sounds like it. Would it be would it be fair to say that that's kind of the spoke or or the wheel rather of the conversation among which the other spokes kind of jut out from or or just what happens? Okay, great. So based on just the stage of life that the people are in that you're dealing with, that just usually is their their number one uh, topic at the moment. And what state do you see people coming to you at? Like, do you see them uh, coming to you because maybe they're intrinsically intrigued with the subject to begin with, which might mean they already have some other ducks in a row, or the opposite, mm-hmm. that, hey, I'm just, I have no idea what I need to be doing. I need you know, uh, need some help. Like what, what range are you seeing there? Yeah, it's mostly beginners. So I do attract some people that are kind of, they they know what they should be doing, but they just need the either accountability or handholding to make sure it happens. Um, one of the interesting findings for my business recently was most of the, the clients that I work with, they tend to be female. I don't only work with females. So that's just who naturally is attracted towards my brand. And when I was talking with them, one of the big realizations was it's females that are either single or acting as single in a relationship. So people that don't necessarily, if they're in a relationship, they can't talk to their significant other about money because it causes fights and they have no one to turn to. And so that was really fascinating for me because that directly changes the way I help them start to have those conversations too. Um, so that's who I tend to focus on and help. So what would be some of the uh, financial issues that you think might be more prominent to uh, perhaps a woman or even a millennial woman, to be more specific, that might not be as mm-hmm. uh, as big of a focal point if an issue at all for someone of, of a different gender or a different life stage? So one of the things that millennial females especially struggle with is for some reason we've got this, it's been ingrained in our society, we can blame it on Disney movies, whatever it is, but a lot of female millennials are waiting for a spouse to come and kind of help save the day. And unfortunately that doesn't happen. So a lot of times it's getting them to take action and take control of their financial life and realize that whether you get married or not, or whether you're in a relationship or not, you still have to be responsible for this. No one's going to come save the day for you, but you. And so a lot of times it's conversations around that. And almost always it's conversations around being comfortable with negotiating your salary. So women tend to not want to have those conversations. So it's, it's a lot of encouraging and saying, you know what, you can apply for that job that you don't think you qualify for. It's better for your financial life, too. And here's some ways that you can also help negotiate a salary that's higher. Um, so it's, it's the ownership piece, empowering them to take control, and then encouraging them to take control of their income as well. And I think you mentioned three things in a row that basically just involve asking. Ask for the job. Ask for the, the rate that you think that you need. Ask for the cooperation from the partner or interaction, if that's relevant. I mean, you know, a lot of people are uh, uncomfortable, you know, asking for what it is that they want. They think, Someone else yep. is just going to potentially know that or do it on their behalf, but that's that's obviously not always going to be the case. <laughs> no, no. I think asking is a, it's an important weapon for everybody is to be comfortable with asking for what you want, what you need, and then ask for help, too. I think that's another big one. Um, I don't touch on the retirement piece. That's just not my wheelhouse at all. I'm not qualified to do that. So for me, it's sometimes it's asking them to reach out to financial advisors or planners in their area that can help them with that piece of their life as well. But you have to be able to ask for help when you need it. So do you see an interaction with somebody that's one of your people as an ongoing indefinite situation or, hey, there's a, there's a particular point we're trying to get to and once I get you to that, we're setting this ship off to sail and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll be ready to go to the next step on your own. I mean, what, how does that relationship usually look over time? Yeah, that's it's a great question. So my, my goal is not to work with people forever. <laughs> that's not, I mean, financially, that'd be great, sure. But it's a kind of a disservice to people. So my goal is to get them to the point where they're comfortable managing the day-to-day on their own. 
they feel like I, I'm confident, I'm comfortable, I can do this. And once they get to that point, it usually takes between three months and one year. Then ideally, they're on their own. They're going and they're talking to CPAs at that point. They're talking to financial planners or advisors. So then they're starting to, to progress in their financial life. So no, I, I would love to work with people forever, but that's not what my goal is. It's to make them self-sufficient. That makes sense. And just as we come to a conclusion here, why don't you tell us what you see for yourself going forward with your business and, and, and podcast and, uh, and how, where you would like to take things? Yeah, so my, my big goal for this year is to reach 150,000 women directly. So I want to work with 150,000 people to help them pay off debt, live on a budget, and start to get more comfortable and confident with their financial life. Uh, within five years, I'm expecting that my business will somewhat turn into a membership where people can go hang out for a little bit, uh, pay a lower monthly fee to get access to some really great information. And then for the podcast, I mean, I'm just having a heck of a time with it. It's fun to interview people and talk about cool money stories, uh, interesting careers. So the podcast is just growing. So I just hope it keeps growing and I still have the ability to interview people and hear cool stories. That sounds great. Who do you uh, go to or what sources do you look at when you're trying to find uh, financial information or things to talk about? What do you think is interesting out in the world of money right now? Most of the time, the, the interesting things that I, I see are actually just questions that my audience asks. So that's what I base all my content around is what does my audience currently need to listen to. Uh, but as far as like fun, interesting content, I'm a big fan of uh, Stacking Benjamin's podcast. I know Joe's been a guest on your show before as well. Um, so I, I listen to some of my other financial friends and get a little bit of inspiration to see of like what's interesting, what's quirky, what's weird topics too. In general, I don't talk politics on my podcast either. So that, that's an easy one for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, half of knowing what you want is knowing what you don't want. And that's definitely a minefield that goes in so many different directions. It's, it makes sense yeah. why you would want to avoid that topic. I mean, to the extent that you can with it, you know, occasionally it affects the money situation. But, um, sure. you know, I can, I can certainly understand that. <laughs> Well, I definitely appreciate you coming on today. One thing I would like to do since we're just coming up at the end of our time is to recommend that everyone go to your the personal site, WhitneyHanson.com, and then also go to the Money Nerds, that's plural, N-E-R-D-S.com, and uh, also check out the podcast there. I also see that you have a fairly robust merch section, so please patronize uh, Whitney's merch section and get a Money Nerd t-shirt as well. Is there anything else that, uh, that you'd like to recommend that we can check out? No, I think that's perfect. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again for coming on. Do you have enough saved for retirement? Do you have a retirement strategy? Can your portfolio and your retirement plan stand up to the changing tax landscape? Record low interest rates, skyrocketing health care costs, market volatility, and increased longevity. Can you afford to live to be 90 or 100 years old? Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner. There's no cost or obligation to you, and you'll learn highly effective strategies to transform your savings and income in retirement, minimize your risk, reduce your taxes, and help your portfolio withstand today's challenges in a stress test. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, five reasons to pay off the mortgage and five reasons to keep the mortgage. My list today is uh, all about whether or not you should pay off your mortgage. And uh, this was an article that just came out in U.S. News by Tom Sightings. I thought it was pretty good. And I'll just kind of read the preface. Owning a home can lead to a comfortable retirement. Uh, in theory, you buy a house when you're 30, faithfully make mortgage payments for 30 years. At age 60, you own your house free and clear. Now you've got a solid nest egg. You can sail into worry-free retirement. Oh, God, that's fantasy land. But more often, here's how it works. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> that was the fantasy land. Oh, I see. You move from a starter home to a bigger house, a bigger mortgage, you refinance, get a lower rate, take out some money in the process, and at age 60, you're still paying a mortgage. So that's me. I'm age 60, and I still have a mortgage. Yep, still so grinding away. That was me. <laughs> so, but then the question is, 
should you pay it off? And and some people, sure. And some people, absolutely not. And this uh, list is going to be five reasons you should keep your mortgage. In other words, do not pay it off. And then five reasons that maybe you should pay it off. All right, good. So because I'm contemplating, I have a home equity line. Yes. And I'm contemplating, do I keep it right. or do I just pay it off? Right. So maybe after this Big Al's list, I will have... Maybe, a... maybe you'll get educated from our, our buddy Tom. Okay, so when to keep your mortgage. The first reason you would want to keep your mortgage is obviously if you don't have enough money to pay it off. I mean, that's a pretty obvious one, right? <laughs> wow, earth shattering. It, <laughs> but, but it goes a little deeper than that. If paying off the mortgage will make you cash poor... Uh, and unable to cover your bills, then don't do it. As far as debt goes, a mortgage is about the best loan you can have. Would you like and, to eat? Well, and, <laughs> uh, and honestly, we do we do see that, don't we? we yes. I mean, we see people take three hundred thousand out of their IRA right. to pay off their mortgage. Exactly. And they got no money outside, and then the tax bill comes, and they owe a hundred grand or whatever the number is. And then they got to pull it out. They got to pull IRA. that out of the mortgage, and and next thing you know, it's like, man, I I didn't really think this through. So yeah, if you if you don't have the money, or you don't, if if you're going to struggle to for your monthly bills, then keep the mortgage. In fact, a lot of times when we have a client come in that has a mortgage that's thinking about paying it off, and we can show them there's no way that that makes sense because they can't afford food, medicine, utilities, transportation, whatever. Right, and, and another to, to piggyback off that, we see this often is all right. I'm I'm putting an extra. Right, two three thousand dollars a month, and maybe this is what you're you're saying, um, you know, towards the you know yes. the mortgage, but they they have nothing in four hundred one k plans. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right? right. Yep. It's like, well, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I want to be debt free. Then I'll focus on building my retirement plans. It's right. like, well, no, there's there's something that's called the time value of money. Right. Right. And then they've got uh, then they 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 pay off their mortgage and they retire in broke. six months. <laughs> they retire broke. And then they got to sell their house. Yes, <laughs> so, right. Here's another another reason you should keep your mortgage is is if your money is tied up in other investments. Even if you have the financial resources to pay off your mortgage, it doesn't make sense if the money's already invested in solid assets that generate income and appreciate over time. Of course, it doesn't really say what those are. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. I mean, if if you look at um, you got to look at rates, though. You got to look. If, yes, if you your do. mortgage is at eight percent, right? You, you then and you have the assets that it's yes. You know, I, then I you're going to have to kind of do some math there, right? I mean, because we um, w- w- just to throw out a few numbers. I mean, the the stock market over the last hundred years has earned just under ten percent. I mean, I can say that because it's true. That's a that's a true number. That's not to say you're going to earn that. Right. That's just what the last hundred years the average has been. Yes, and we when we look at a globally diversified portfolio, you know, we we might look at a five percent rate of return, six percent. You might do better, but we think that's a reasonably conservative number. That certainly does not guarantee anything. It just means that's a that's a reasonable number. But if your mortgage is eight percent, and we're saying maybe you ought to think that your portfolio might earn five percent. Well, maybe that's not a good bet, right? Right. right? So maybe you got to go ahead, go ahead and pay it off. Or yeah, but you still can't go cash poor. You have to look at both. You do because you you're still going to need those assets to to live off of at some point in your life. Right. That's right. Here's number three: why you would keep your mortgage is if you still have other loans because a mortgage generally carries a lower interest rate. It's in in most cases it's tax deductible. If you're carrying credit card debt or Auto loans, auto loans sometimes are low interest. Credit card debt is certainly not. So that would be better to pay that off before the mortgage. Here's one. Let's see if you agree with this. A reason not to pay off your mortgage is if you think inflation is coming back. Okay. Well, I know what they're saying. How, yeah. How's is, it? is because you're, it's a fixed payment. Correct. So my mortgage payment is three grand a, a month, right? And 20 years from now, it's still going to be three grand a month. Right. And then when inflation is sky high and a loaf of bread is going to cost me 4500 bucks. Right. Your $3,000 mortgage, $3, mortgage is cheap. Seems like nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I suppose. It's, it's, that, a, it's a true statement. And, and I think you, you could, and, and again, this is personal preference, right? But, but if you happen to live in a state or city where pr- uh, price of real estate tends to appreciate, 
such as a lot of California real estate appreciates more than, let's say, Minnesota. real estate in Nebraska, Minnesota, as a general rule, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another reason why you might not want to pay off your mortgage is if you're still working, because those who are still in the job might be better off building an emergency fund and contributing the maximum to the IRA and 401k, and which we absolutely believe. In fact, and, and, and I would say it this way, uh, Joe, is... is if you have a choice on, on saving, you should have an emergency fund. But by all means, make sure that you're getting money of the 401k, at least up to the match, and, and try to max out that 401k. That's $18,000, 18500 in 2018, another $6,000 if you're 50 and over. You want to make sure that you do that. Then you want to actually save extra money outside of retirement so that you build up some tax diversification. If you still feel like you have some extra money and you want to throw some extra money at the mortgage, then, then go for it. But a lot of people get that backwards. They want to pay off that mortgage. They they neglect their retirement accounts. They neglect their emergency fund. They've, they in some cases they they neglect paying off other types of debt because they 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 want to be mortgage free when they when right. they when they retire. Yep. So anyway, those are the five reasons that you would uh, keep your mortgage. Here's five reasons to pay off your mortgage: is if you have a lot of cash, have your money sitting in any in a money market fund earning what point. Three percent, and right. your mortgage is four percent. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Well, yeah. Then it, as as long as you don't need that cash, right, and that, then, that's that's where it sort of comes in. Right? Yeah, that's the, that's the root of everything. It's like, well, if you have all that cash, what is that cash for? Right. What's the purpose? For if it's it? to live over the next twenty years, that's different. Right, yeah. Yeah, but if it's if you've got all that covered and you still got a lump of cash that's earning nothing. And you have your emergency fund, and you've got your income plan through your retirement. Then, then sure, that could be a reason. Uh, a second reason related to that is if you're looking for peace of mind, and that's that's actually probably one of the most common reasons that people do this, yep. even though they know that if a globally diversified portfolio can can earn five or six percent or more, and my mortgage is three and a half, wouldn't I do better just having the mortgage? But it doesn't feel good at night. You're, you're thinking, God, I wish I would. When you're falling asleep, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have a mortgage? Right. And there's something to that for yep. sure. For sure. A third reason is if you can access a home equity loan. And what he's saying here is that maybe then you don't need a lot of extra cash on hand for your emergency fund because you can get that at the home equity loan. But be careful on that one. Because they could take it away from yeah, you. And they did take it away during the Great Recession. They took it away from me and they took it away from a lot of people. They took it away from Big Al. They took it away from Big Al. <laughs> they apparently didn't know I was a finance guru. <laughs> some, uh, uh, I don't know, some administrative person probably back in Connecticut said, Clopine, you're out. It's enough. You're done. No more draws. <laughs> no more, we want you to pay off what you got. Ugh. Uh, let's see. Why else would you would you want to pay off your mortgage? Uh, you cannot take advantage of tax savings. Maybe you got a low enough mortgage where you don't you can't itemize, right? That could be another reason. Number five is you want to set up a comfortable nest egg, which is kind of an interesting comment. But what what he's getting at is it's kind of a fallback asset. You know, your house is paid off. You can always sell it. You can downsize. You can re- get a reverse mortgage. It's it's a source of funds for you later if you need it, as long as you've got other resources for sort of plan A for your retirement. And then, Joe, I think a lot of people want to pay off their home because they want to live off their liquid assets, but they want their home to go to their kids, and then that's what the kids get. Right. Yeah. Hey, well, question for you then. Okay. All right. If I'm 65, want to retire at 65, 66, yeah. then the, the analysis should look at, all right, do I pay this mortgage off? Do I keep my current loan or do I refinance? Okay. Right? Sure. And I think that's the planning that people need to do around their home mortgages when it comes to retirement. Sure. You know, if it's 100000 bucks and you got plenty of cash, and eh, just pay the thing off, whatever. All right. Wishing everyone a happy holiday season. For Big Al Clopin, I'm Joe Anderson and Big J Thomas. Uh, we'll be back again next week with more exciting financial news for you to use. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll be back again next week. So to recap today's show, whether or not you pay off the mortgage depends entirely on your individual personal financial situation. There is no blanket yes or no answer. The new rules of retirement say that everything you know about retirement investing is wrong and dangerous, but that might just be sensationalism. Your best bet is to run it by a professional before you make any money moves. We've got a few of those at Pure Financial, and you can reach them at 888-994-6257. 
Special thanks to our guest, the money nerd, Whitney Hansen. Gen Y and Gen Z have very different needs and goals when it comes to finance. And for them, back in my day just doesn't apply. For a no BS place to learn about money, visit WhitneyHanson.com. That's W-H-I-T-N-E-Y-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And check out her podcast at TheMoneyNerds.com. Subscribe to this podcast at YourMoneyYourWealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, if you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer live on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka, is licensed under a Creative Commons license.